friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome, lovely listeners, to Tomb of Ideas After Dark. <laughs> because we're recording late and we're getting hammered. Okay, we're not actually getting. Okay, any future employers out there, we're not actually getting hammered on the podcast. We are each enjoying a single adult beverage. And Trey, tell the next people what you're drinking. Sure. So uh, I. I'm mixing some caffeine with my alcohol, and so I am having a bourbon and Coke made with uh, Larceny bourbon. Yep, and appropriately enough for this podcast in this episode, I am drinking Ghost Rider by Palmetto Brewing Company. This is a malt beverage with cherries and ghost peppers, which, if you're not aware, are some of the hottest peppers known to man. Um, it has this nice description on the back. The ghost pepper remains one of the world's hottest peppers, but Palmetto decided to ch- tame it. Hmm. We take a few of these bright red beauties, add them to one of the most balanced pale ales we've ever brewed, and temper the heat with just a touch of sweet cherry. Don't be afraid. The resulting beer is a beautiful balance between sweet and heat that you'll find both refreshing and alluringly complex. It's not too hot to leave you in tears, but it's hot enough to keep things interesting. Come on, take a ride on the just slightly hotter side. So, yeah. Um, Before I open up this bad boy, I again want to stress to all of our younger listeners to drink responsibly. Um, So I'm going to open this up, and I'm going to try it, and then we're going to talk about some comics. Specifically, we're going to talk about... uh, Adventures in Which, Fear. Not oh, to sorry, spoil no. anything, but I have a feeling that uh, your Ghost Rider is going to be a little spicier than the one that we're reading today. I, we'll talk about it when we get there. We'll talk about it when we get there. I mean, we'll probably talk about the Ghost Rider after the break, but we'll talk about the other Ghost Rider later. So yeah, like I was saying before I was rudely interrupted by some um, cocktail drinking putts, uh, I... Uh, Crap. What are we talking about today? I'm not even drinking yet, and I'm already like this. <laughs> In my defense, a minute ago, my headphones went out for a second, and I couldn't hear you. <laughs> anyway, we're recording Adventures Into Fear, number 11, and Marvel Spotlight, number 7. Which is a little bit of a lighter load than we usually have, uh, but um, I think we'll have plenty to say about both of these comics. Right. So we're talking about these two comics tonight because they actually came out in the same month. And they both came out in December of 1972. And they were actually the only comics that fall under our purview that came out for this month. And originally we were going to talk about uh, this issue, another issue and Frankenstein, but we realized if we were to combine the two months, both December and January, 
we'd be talking about five comics tonight. And that is a heavy, heavy load. And our episodes are really already long enough. Right. Um, And so we figured split it up, spread it out a little bit. Let us really sort of savor these comics and, and, and spend some time with them rather than do, doing the sort of rush job that we'd have had to do with with five books. Exactly. And speaking of savoring, let's get this party started. We'll be right back. You know what a teaser is, darling? No? Well, let me, Elvira, give you an example. You can win a thousand bucks in the Coors Light Spring Green Sweepstakes. When I give you this phone number, dial it. And if you're the 50th caller, voila, you win. But I ain't giving it to you just yet. Find out when at this Coors and Coors Light display. And that, darling, is a teaser. I'd give you another one, but I'm not that kind of girl. So, nobody's perfect. And we're back. Okay, I think I took too, too big of a drink. <laughs> okay, I could definitely taste the ghost pepper. <laughs> okay. So it's not just a clever marketing gimmick. No, it, it really isn't. There's definitely pepper in this beer. I, I, I definitely got it on the aftertaste. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's going to be interesting the rest of the episode. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> Trey, why don't you tell the next people what we're talk- which issue we're talking about? Okay, while you recover, um, <clears throat> we are going to be uh, taking a look at Fear, number 11, Night of the Netherspawn. This is, uh, as we said earlier, from December 1972, written by Steve Gerber, penciler, Rich Buckler, inker, Jim Mooney, letterer, Gene... Is it Izzo or Izzo? I think it's Izzo. Gene Izzo. That's what I thought. Uh, edited by Roy Thomas. And the cover is by Neil Adams. The creature known as Man-Thing happens upon two young people in the swamp. The two young people are Jennifer and Andy, who have stolen a book on the occult from their grandfather. The two youths use the book to try to summon a demon to do their bidding but leave dejected when they think their attempt is unsuccessful. Only the Man-Thing witnesses the portal opening above them, and the simple swamp dragonfly transformed by it into a winged demon. The demon tracks the two youths to a theater in town where it interrupts a horror film by crashing through the screen. Before it can claim the two youths, however, it is set upon by the Man-Thing who strangles the life from the creature with his monstrous strength, causing the demon to crumble into dust. As the Man-Thing turns to return to the swamp, though, the demon reforms into a now humanoid, stronger, and more intelligent form. The battle continues to the edge of the swamp, where the demon seems to have Man-Thing on the ropes until the shambling creature falls into the bog and emerges again rejuvenated. Meanwhile, Jennifer and Andy realize that the demon's power is linked to the book and are able to banish it back to its home dimension by burning the page with the spell they used to summon it. The demon dismissed, the two youths promise Man-Thing that they'll meet again 
as the hulking creature disappears into the swamp. So we have Steve Gerber's first comic. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to be reading a lot more of him as we continue through this book in particular. Right, I'm really excited. I think we talked last time about looking forward to Steve Gerber, and boom, here he is. Yep, and and we can, at least I think, we can already see a little bit of a shift in tone and style with how Man-Thing stories are told. Right, I think this is the first time we've actually had Man-Thing linked to the occult rather than super science gone wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we still get the, the talk of um, his sort of, of Salus's experiment. But but yeah, we don't really dwell on that so much. And, and I can't help but think that with this portal that uh, Jennifer opens up, we're already getting sort of a prototype of what becomes the, the nexus of realities. Right, so... Here we see, okay, on the first page we get the caption, Arcane forces, power beyond the scope of human kin. You've met them before, haven't you, Man-Thing? When strange forces took hold of your once-human form in the swamp on whose edge you stand. Now, as you watch these two humans, you sense an ominous pale of evil around them. Yeah. First off... I don't remember the occult ever being referenced in a Man-Thing story before. Not at all. Not that I can remember. And, and what it reminds me of, though, is even though it's far earlier, this is the same sort of thing that Alan Moore did with Swamp Thing. Yeah. Shifting, I shifting got... it from failed science experiment to um, sort of taken over by the green in that case. Right. And I, that's definitely... Cut the the thought i had as well where you know like hey steve gerber did it first right so let's talk a little bit about steve gerber um he this was his first paid work for marvel um he was apparently a friend of roy thomas back in missouri and he was making his way as like a car salesman, but apparently a used car salesman, but apparently he was too honest. Um, He was on food stamps, worked as a DJ, then at an ad agency, um, writing, wrote copy for savings and loans commercials. And basically just wrote Roy Thomas saying, please, for the love of God, get me out of here. He had a young family at this time and he really just wanted, I guess, a way to express himself uh, creatively. Well, I mean, he certainly had the chops for it. Uh, because even in this first story, I mean, his voice pretty much comes through. I mean, that some of the narration very much is in the style of the earlier Man-Thing issues. He's sort of imitating that much of what has already come before. But... Especially in the dialogue, I think you can already see glimpses of what we'll later think of as Gerber's voice. Exactly. I mean, things get crazy with this issue. Where last issue we had babies abandoned in the swamp, 
and the man thing taking vengeance on rednecks um here we've got demons coming out of port dragonflies being turned into demons coming out of portals crashing through horror screens it's good zany fun as only steve gerber could deliver it at that time you know what this reminds me of it reminds me of the progression that godzilla movies took because the early the very first godzilla movie you had the monster was the menace and the people were afraid of it and that's basically what we had in the earliest man thing stories but then once the once your audience gets used to that monster you have to come up with some newer bigger threat that then that monster has to confront and that's sort of where we've gone with man thing where it's taken us up to now to really sort of give man thing another monster that's not just a swamp creature like a gator uh to fight let's talk about the fight that we see here uh, it's a great fight yeah i mean the, the the demon he's fighting it's kind of this generic demon in both its forms but the fight we get here is really dynamic the stakes really feel high it feels like it's a fight to the death it's it's really nice in a way that you know I think a lot of fights we get in comics that are just slugfests don't feel. And it really helps that this creature is so different physically from Man-Thing in both forms. Yeah, it's not what we get, I think, in a lot of, especially films about superheroes, where this creature is the mirror image of Man-Thing. Right, like I was flipping through some back issues at the local comic shop earlier, and I saw more than one issue that had variations on Ben Grimm the Thing versus Man-Thing. And as fun as I imagine those books are, that's kind of a boring fight because it's two big brutes punching each other. Right. And I think this is very well illustrated on, let's see, there's a big splash page um, when Man-Thing comes in and grabs... The demon, the at this time, winged demon by the tail. Yeah. And just grabs him, and they're, the two are kind of just locked in battle now. And it's a really good splash page. On a time where there really didn't weren't a lot of co- splash page in comics. We should point out this is Rich Buckler on art. Doing a uh, really good job. I, I am impressed both with the way he captures the sort of shambling man thing... But then also the action in general is just very well done. It, it walks that line between action and horror. Right. Uh, I do want to talk about the, the two kids here, Andy and Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Partially related to Rich Buckler. How old would you say these kids are? They are at least early teens in the comic itself. Right, because if you look at the cover, and I will point out this is a fantastic Neil Adams cover. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is a classic Man-Thing cover. You have these kids drawing a pentagram in the ground, and you have the Man-Thing emerging from the swamp, reaching towards them, uh, all by the light of a lantern, which is just great invocative imagery. But these kids look pretty young on the cover. Yeah, they look preteen on the cover. Exactly. While in the comic itself, they're definitely teenagers at least teenagers yeah i mean they they talk about going to a head shop to buy the supplies 
Uh, they go to the movies by themselves late at night. Like it, it, they are clearly older in the text of the comic than they are on the cover. Which that could very well be that Neil Adams was just given a brief outline or or a description of what the comic would be about without actually seeing what uh, Buckler was doing for the interiors. Similar to the Werewolf by Night cover, um, a few, well, gosh, five episodes back. Right. The first Werewolf by Night cover where his Jack Russell looks nothing like Mike Plug's Jack Russell. Right. Uh, but again, it's Neil Adams. It's very hard to argue with Neil Adams. Um, but I would actually, I mean, going back to the art, I would almost speculate that Jennifer is maybe 18, 19. I could see that. Uh, especially, especially considering what I think I know may be coming with the character later. Right. Although I really don't know a lot. <laughs> well, I, I do. As the comic suggests, and from what I'm remembering of things that I read years ago, um, we will be seeing more of some of these characters. Yep. Which, I'm looking forward to it, because you, you wouldn't think you could create a supporting cast for a shambling swamp creature, but I think Steve Gerber can actually do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's it kind of reminds me of some of his later work on Marvel 2-in-1, where he creates a supporting cast for the thing that's separate from the fantastic four right uh with namorita and oh goodness this this dude he's he's basically the superman pastiche with like the mind of an infant and he later becomes aquarius okay i don't remember his name before that but yes yeah and you've got a kid who is slightly psychic and they all kind of create this little supporting cast for the thing and then steve gerber leaves the book and they're never seen again huh but he's he's very good at starting um supporting casts where you wouldn't think a supporting cast would be possible and and also seeing what sort of narrative gaps a supporting cast should fill one dar the character's name was Wondar. Right, Wondar. I, I remember Wondar. Wondar. Um, I, another thought that I had, it, it, we talked about the sort of sudden appearance of the occult in, in the Man-Thing comic. Um, I just wonder how much of that has to do with the the sort of evolving rules of the comics code. That, that, right. That there was a time where it made sense for your monsters to be science-based because that got around some of those rules. But now we're at a point where Dracula has become popular, Werewolf by Night has become popular. They've sort of forced the hand of the comics code, and so now they can bring in even more of that. Well, remember, there's th this is around the time that that old urban myth got started that, you know, the reason Marvel was able to do start doing horror comics is because... They need to be able to publish Marv Wolfman's name on the cover. <laughs> Which is an urban legend. It's not true. It's a story I've always liked, though. Yeah. And, you know, and you're right. We, we st we're starting to see this progression where we have 
Um, first, we have the Marvel Comics challenging the Comics Code Authority with that famous Spider-Man drug issue. Right. Which was... Dun, 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 dun. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 96, which was about four months before we got Morbius, the living vampire. Which, even Morbius, is very much sort of daring the comics code to do something, because he's a vampire. They they change the origin so that he's not technically a cult, but he's a vampire. Right, and he's even got fangs, which right. I think they skirt around on the Saturday morning cartoon. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, he had the, like... Honestly, the se- sorry, I have a whole thing about Morbius on the cartoon, but he is way creepier in that kid's show than he ever was in the comics. Yeah, because I have to he agree. has those weird like suckers on his hand, and he like grabs you and drains your life force. It's terrifying, but anyway, right? I mean, the the, the Morbius character we see here, uh, we we've seen so far, is spooky. I'll give him that. He he's especially the way a good artist like. Um, Kane drew him the way he moved in a weird, awkward fashion. But those little suckers on his hand were creepy. Yes, because they're different. It, it makes him something other than a regular vampire. Exactly. Old um, vampires are kind of old hat. But the little suckers on his hands kind of like this almost Cronenberg feel to them. Right. But anyway, that that's a whole other tangent that we can maybe come back to the next time Morbius shows up. Yeah, speaking of Morbius, we've got to talk about him later. <laughs> um, also, I really like this scene at, on the last page where Man-Thing thinks, hmm, do I have to, kid to kill these kids now too? Well, is he wrong? I mean, all of this mess was their fault. He, like, yeah. Man-Thing almost died because of those kids. Yeah, but does that justify killing them? I mean, Man-Thing acts on instinct. Yeah, I, I feel this is more... This is less, hey, these kids cause this problem, than Man-Thing is still in the uh, amped-up mode of battle, and he just... Um, just battled this creature and he's still kind of amped up and like do i need to turn on these kids now too what kind of monster am i yeah i mean and although the captions on the bottom half of this page are kind of weird okay so now you face the innocents well those innocents drew a pentagram on the ground and summoned a demon um and then also the the, the very last caption I just find really fascinating and and very Gerber-esque. You understand some emotions, man-thing, like fear and loathing. What about love? Which, I'm kind of thinking, what's love got to do with it? (laughs) I mean, he's he's like, okay, I've decided not to murder you children. Right. What does that have to do with love? That's mercy. Right. I, I wouldn't call it love unless you're implying some kind of romantic relationship between Jennifer and Man-Thing, which 
honestly, I don't know if that's where this is going or not. I mean, because again, she's called girl child on this, right? Yeah, that just seems wildly inappropriate. Even if you are a wandering swamp creature, I'm still not okay with statutory rape. Right. But I have to say, this is a fantastic inaugural outing for Steve Gerber. Yes, and I mean, I I would argue this is the best Man-Thing comic we've read so far. I would agree. It doesn't have quite the um, art oomph of that, like that Savage Tales. Right. Which had fantastic art. But I think as far as just what made Man-Thing an enduring creature and an enduring part of the Marvel Universe, that starts here. Right. Which is funny because it was a while back that Man-Thing sort of formally joined the Marvel Universe by teaming up with Kazar. Right. And that story wasn't nearly as good as this. No. No, but I think this is where Man-Thing starts to find his place in the Marvel Universe under Steve Gerber. Which, if it's going to be more weird, fun like this, I'm definitely looking forward to more of this. Oh yeah, no, I, I think this is an upswing for... Man thing as a character and for the Adventure into Fear title. Right. Which I, I which I guess is officially now Adventure into Fear and not just Fear. Well, I think I think it was already Adventure into Fear, and I think eventually it'll just become Fear. I'm not sure the progression here. Well, because the, the previous issue, I believe, um like Adventure Into was on the title, but it was much smaller than Fear. Like Fear was like the main title listed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's uh, and actually because la- this is issue seven, right? Yeah. 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 Issue six just had Fear. No, eleven. Uh, sorry, eleven. Um, so you go back into the single digits. It was just Fear. Um, okay. And then. Uh, the last issues we looked at yeah it became adventure into fear in in issue 10 which was last issue okay so so i guess as man thing took over it became adventure into fear right talking about that transition from a horror anthology to an adventure title right and we're still getting oh. some some backup stories and things like that in there too but this is now pretty solidly man things book yeah although i do want to talk about the the one anthology backup story we have in here did you read it i skimmed it i didn't read it in its entirety oh no you've got pretty much all you needed from skimming i think (laughs) um it's called the spider waves it's about a janitor named sven which you know how, ref- how interesting to see a character named Sven in a comic mm-hmm. <laughs> from an American comic. But uh, Sven is asked by, I guess, his boss to rid a closet of some spiders. And this is where it's explained that Sven has a deadly fear of spiders. But because his boss bullies him and threatens to fire him, he goes in and he destroy, kills all the spiders and finds that he likes killing spiders because of his fear. And he decides he's this master spider killer. So he goes to a local bar 
and brags to the people at the bar that he's this master spider killer. And this woman comes in the bar and says, oh, what a coincidence, you're a master spider killer. I have some spiders at home that need to be taken care of. And he goes home with her, and she's revealed to be a giant spider woman <laughs> who captures him in her web. I'm sorry, I, I know we're not like reviewing that part of the issue, but that final panel is hilarious. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the first appearance of Marvel Spider-Woman, right? Uh, I was going to say Madam Web. Ooh, nice. Nice. <laughs> um, it, It's a decent story. It's obviously a reprint yeah. from an earlier age. Oh, yeah. No, the, the, you can even tell just the art is a different decade. Yeah. It's it's fun. It's, it's like, you know, second tier... Tales from the Crypt kind of stuff. It's the same sort of O. Henry ending that that early, early, early Dracula story had way back when. Right in our first episode. Yeah. Seems so long ago now. <laughs> but that was that was the style of those earlier horror comics was, you know, you, you put in some creepy imagery and a twist ending and you're good. Yeah. Um, but I think that's it for this issue. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, like I say, best man thing we've had yet and is a sign of even better things to come. Exactly. Although, I think we've got more to go because I'm only halfway through this beer. <laughs> well, um, coming up, we have uh, an issue of Marvel Spotlight. Uh, number... Crap. Seven. Number seven, um, which is a uh, another Ghost Rider issue. So uh, I'm going to go get a refill, and then we'll be right back. Sounds good to me. When I helped design my line of AMF Roadmaster wheels, I said make them red, white, and blue to bear my name, Evil Knievel. You can see they're built solid, flashy, and hip, and the bikes come with these safety tips that bear my name, Evil Knievel. So if your kids are thrilled, I know just how they feel. These wheels are real exciting and bear my name, Evil Knievel. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Next up on the show, we'll be talking about Marvel Spotlight number seven. This story entitled, Die, Die, My Daughter. Covered on this issue is December 1972. Writer, again, is Gary Friedrich. Penciler, again, is Mike Plug. Inker, I can't remember. It, Frank Monty. Letterer is Herb Cooper. And editor, I'm pretty sure this is again is Roy Thomas. Trey, are you ready? I don't know, James. You tell me. No, Take it no. away. I, I kid. I'm not that drunk. Um, I might be. <laughs> okay, so... <clears throat> we begin almost immediately where the previous issue left off. Curly, secretly Crash Simpson, raises his knife to sacrifice his daughter Roxanne. But Satan intervenes and orders him to take her to a black mass so that he can claim her soul forever. Curly hides the unconscious Roxanne in a barrel and sneaks her out of Madison Square Garden and past its security guards. 
Meanwhile, the Ghost Rider roams the streets on his motorcycle and contemplates the constant danger his existence poses for Roxanne, and even considers surrendering his soul to Satan. Lost in thought, he fails to notice a nearby patrol car, which begins pursuit due to his speeding. The rider decides to outrun them, and detours into a parking lot. During the chase, the car's radio antenna is damaged, leaving the officers unable to call for backup. Ghost Rider escapes the parking lot by jumping his bike over a fence, and when the police try to follow suit, they crash through the fence and into a mud hole. The chase leads Ghost Rider to a closed bridge, which he is able to jump, leaving the police stuck on the other side. The Rider finds himself in a graveyard, where he resumes contemplating his cursed, lonely existence. Exhausted, he finds a comfortable place among the tombstones to rest. Meanwhile, Curly has delivered Roxanne to the Satanic Temple in Greenwich Village, and begins preparations for the sacrifice. Overnight, Ghost Rider transforms back into Johnny Blaze, who rushes back to the garden for his next show. There, he is informed that Roxanne has disappeared. Blaze is worried and wants to join the search, but the show must go on. After his performance, he is told about the man seen near the locker rooms the previous night, and realizes that the description matches Curly. Nightfall brings another transformation, and the Ghost Rider confronts Satan's servants and demands to know where Curly has taken Roxanne. After a demonstration of his powers, they tell Ghost Rider about the Satanic Temple. Meanwhile, Curly has Roxanne chained to the altar and begins the sacrificial rites. Ghost Rider bursts in just in time, as the cultists call forth Satan. Satan changes Curly's appearance, revealing to Ghost Rider that he is Crash Simpson. Satan changes Curly's appearance, revealing to Ghost Rider that he is Crash Simpson, and grants him Satan's sword to do battle with the Ghost Rider. With Satan and Roxanne watching, Crash and Ghost Rider prepare to fight to the death. Um, you, I think you said you had some feelings about this issue before the, we started recording. I mean, it's not good. But it's not bad? Okay. Okay, that's accurate. I was actually prepared to disagree with you. But, I mean, it's not a great issue. But I honestly feel it's a lot of fun. It's, it's getting better. It's, I, I guess when I say it's not good... It's not good in that we're, it treads water. Um, what, yeah. What you want from the first page is for Ghost Rider to confront Curly slash Crash. Right. I think the scene in the graveyard where Ghost Rider takes a nap it was a wasted scene. I think the scene where he confronts Satan's servants was unnecessary. I think the meat of this issue is, I think, the really cool kind of Dukes of Hazard style car chase between Ghost Rider and these two cops. Oh, yeah. No, there, there's totally a Dukes of Hazard, or I, I was thinking sort of Burt Reynolds movie, Smokey and the Bandit type thing. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that, considering that Dukes of Hazard wouldn't come along for another seven years. Right. Um,. But yeah, the, the the way he sort of leads them on this chase, um, and is really just sort of showing off. That's the funny thing about it. Ghost Rider, he actually wins the race about halfway through. When they crash into that mud hole, Johnny Blaze could have just ridden off right then and there.
but he goes back and jumps over them again to make sure they're really stuck, and that gives them the chance to come after him again. Right, and actually looking it up, uh, Smokey and the Bandit didn't come out until 1977. Okay. The cover date on this, again, is 1972. Right. So this predates Smokey and the Bandit by five years. Wow. So this came first. Yeah, I mean, and but it's very much the kind of chase sequence that would become famous in the movies within the next few years. Right, that's true. And it, it's a fun chase. Evil Knievel gets name-dropped. Of course, yep. Uh, yeah, I would argue that the chase is one of the best parts of this issue. Yeah, the action in that sequence is very well done. Um, it's exciting. It's... I think I said this with the last issue. Ghost Rider shines as a character when he's on his bike. Yeah, and I definitely get the, hey, why the heck do we care about Ghost Rider as this bicycle um, riding character now where, okay, I get, I get the appeal now after this scene. I would argue this would have been a much more fun issue if it had a different rider. Okay. Like, not to tout Steve Gerber too much, but I think if you had put Steve Gerber in on this, some of the zaniness of that Man-Thing issue put in Ghost Rider, and this, this would have been a really, really cool issue. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably right. There, there's, a, there's a self-seriousness to this issue that kind of works against it. And, okay, I would actually argue that it's great that we are talking about just two comics today, because you know what this feels like? What's that? This feels like the Man-Thing issue was the main feature, and the Ghost Rider issue is the second bill. It's the B-movie. Yeah, I can see that. It's It's the one where the whole thing exists for the action sequence in the middle... And the rest of it's just there to get you to it. Exactly. It's it's there to fill out that double feature bill. But as far as that goes, I think it works. I think it's a great second bill to that Man-Thing story. And, and I, I, I would mm-hmm. like to say, um, I really like the cover of the issue. Yeah. Like, it looks like a B-movie, like, early, seven, early to mid-70s Hammer Horror poster. Right, and I would actually argue that because we're only talking about the two comics this time around, one of them by Rich Buckler and the other by Mike Plug, we don't get overloaded on Plug right. in this issue. Like I think we've done in previous episodes, I think maybe we're a little too hard on him. Right, right. And, and there there are some visually very good moments in this issue. Um, the Anytime Satan appears, it looks really cool. Yeah. Um, but also... So you heard it here first, kids. Satan is cool. <laughs> um, but also, uh, the uh, part of the flashback that Ghost Rider has uh, while he's driving through the streets at night, um, it's the bottom of page three of the comic. Um, it's just a really nice sort of montage of images from the previous issue. That just looks really nice together. There are some points I want to talk about. Um, we start our comic with a quote from American Pie. 
Yes. The song, America yes. Pie, not the movie. As the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan smiling with delight. Actually, it's supposed to be laughing, isn't it? I think it is supposed to be laughing. I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but that sounds right. Don McLean, 1971. Also, you spelled McLean wrong. Right. Um, I suppose quoting American Pie would be cliche in today's comics. That was that was like hip and cool when, when this issue came out, though. Like, it's what, only a year after the song? Right, and I think we're starting to see the advent of the hip and cool creators. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is the... the like I said, we're, this is where we're starting to get people like Steve Gerber, um, Engelhart, um, and others, where, you know, they kind of got variously inebriated and uh, ran around the, the city. Yeah. Um, and I, I will say, also on this first page, I see Plug doing some interesting visual stuff here. I mentioned the, the appearance of Satan, but before you even get to that, there's a three-panel sequence of just a shadow on a wall. And it's really sort of old-school German expressionism Nosferatu-type imagery. Right. And really, that is where Plug shines. You can tell that Plug is a fan of old horror films like again that that german expressionism that defined the early universal films where you're getting those european directors coming in and uh shaping the visual style of american horror before we get abbott and costello coming in right and there are some really great close-ups of faces in this issue that similarly play with light and shadow to create effect um, there, there's a good one of the, the cops on page 10. Mood and tone are conveyed purely through the way shadow plays across their faces. Right. And Plug is getting really great at drawing Ghost Rider here. Um, on the next page, page 11, uh, Ghost Rider is just kind of like gesturing and it's very invocative. Yeah. Um, although... I will point out when the cops are chasing him earlier, they do mention some um, some guy with a glowing helmet. And I'm like, how often are people in these comics gonna mistaken Ghost Rider's flaming skull for a glowing helmet? Right. I mean, can they not tell the difference between a helmet and fire? To be fair, he's when he says that Ghost Rider is speeding. They they are at a full stop, and Ghost Rider is speeding by. So what they see is a blur. Just to defend the cops in that one moment. Right. Okay. But, yes, you're, you're right. Like This is becoming a trend where people see a guy with a flaming skull for a head and refuse to acknowledge that it's a flaming skull for a head. So, back to the graveyard. Johnny Blaze has this little soliloquy about how he's been scorned and rejected by humanity... So far, humanity has been pretty chill about a guy with a blazing skull showing up. Like that, until the end of the issue last time, that biker gang basically just took him in as one of their own. Right? Or they're 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 all thinking, ah, some guy with a gimmick. Right, and and and, I mean, and the only other real human interaction he's had is Roxanne, 
and she is being far better to him than he deserves. I I would almost argue that Roxanne is the most understanding Marvel heroine I have ever seen from this era of comics. That's that's fair. I'm really concerned for Roxanne's health because her dad stuffed her unconscious body into a barrel that previously held some sort of cleaning compound. Ooh. And that just seems like not good for long-term health issues. Yeah, you may have a point there. Like, and and it's not like Johnny Blaze has any more souls to sell in order to save people's lives. Right, like, um, hey. Yeah, especially with her family history of cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, hey, um, I need my girlfriend's cancer cured as well. Uh, what do, what do you have to trade for her health? Your soul is already mine. How about my hamster's soul? Ghost hamster! But I mean, at, like, at that point, Satan just has to be like, c- come on, Johnny. It's not like you get a punch card for this. Five souls and the next one's free. <laughs> the tenth one, you get a free Frosty. <laughs> um. Okay. Also speaking of Roxy, we apparently have a romantic rival in Slade. Right. Who... Which sort of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, I don't remember them having this manager type guy before. Well, Do it, you? It, it's almost like halfway through the issue, they realized, wait a minute... Johnny Blaze has to have a conversation with someone about Roxanne being missing, but normally the person running the show that he would talk to would be Roxanne. Exactly. We 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 definitely got the impression that Roxanne was a very um, one-woman type show kind of person. Yeah, that she took over the show from her dad. Right. So how is Johnny coming in and doing it? All like, I can guess... Well, all I can guess is that we're supposed to infer that sometime during the ending of that last issue, after Johnny saves her, but before um, Curly abducts her, somewhere in the in that mix, we're supposed to take it that he agreed to join the show. Okay, but there's no time for that. Also, it kind of feels like it's just been three days since he became Ghost Rider. Yes. And in he, that time, Roxy is taking over the show, but apparently she does the night show and he does the afternoon show. Right. Which I'm not sure how you would build that or sell tickets for that. I think what they're counting on is that because this is still Marvel Spotlight and not a solo title, it's probably a like you're probably getting lots of new readers every time and so i don't think continuity is necessarily the the most important thing to we we had similar issues like this with werewolf by night where relationships and situations tended to fluctuate from issue to issue in those early ones including us just getting a random female lead out of nowhere last issue in werewolf by night exactly it's still happening um so 
So I think something similar here where they are still figuring out what the status quo for this book is. Right. But I think, I think it just stands out here because we just saw it done very well with Steve Gerber. Like we just talked about Gerber is so good at introducing that supporting cast. Right. And doing it in really random ways to the point where we'll later see one of the supporting cast become a superstar. Right. Where I I'm I I don't think there's gonna be a Slade movie, at least not this Slade. <laughs> I mean, I don't care about him at all. Yeah, no, no that that middle section at the show serves no purpose other than to feed Johnny Blaze exposition that he otherwise might not have. Right to the point where when I was talking about parts to be that could be cut out of the comic. I forgot that part existed. Right. Well, and, I don't... And you had just done a summary. <laughs> I don't think I mentioned it in my summary. I mentioned he goes back to do the show, and then I skip to the next part. Exactly. Um, speaking of the, the visual depiction of Ghost Rider, though, I will say there are some really great images of him using his powers in the back half of this issue. I don't... I don't think I've ever seen a Ghost Rider before who can, like, shoot fire from his hands. Well, and again, I I said this last time, too, but they're still figuring out what his powers are. No one has actually come out in this book and said, here's what Ghost Rider can do. Right. I'm definitely more familiar with the Danny Ketch Ghost Rider where his power, his, his fire ability is tied in with that chain. Yeah, the chains and the penance stare and... All of that stuff we're still a good, like, ten plus years away from. Yeah. Um, Although, yeah. go ahead. I was going to say, on bottom of page 18, when he manifests the hellfire in front of the bikers, that's just a really cool image. Yeah. Although most of the really cool imagery in this book starts at about page 21. Yes. Where we start getting into the sacrifice. You mean where it straight up turns into a, like hammer horror movie about a cult yeah that's exactly the point i mean i i I love it so much like curly here you know it's really creepy that this is her father yes because he's all like bare-chested flaring at his cape type style there's a very sexual nature to this yeah i mean um disrobe her let the master see the flower of beauty we bring him that's creepy even if even if she's not his daughter that's creepy yeah but the fact he is she is his daughter is really creepy yes and that's really upsetting because plue does a great job drawing it yes um i mean if i were to see this in a film i'd be like yes and I also would just like to say that the final panel of the issue at the uh, at the bottom of page, I think, 28, that's a heavy metal album I would buy just off the cover. Right? Like, <laughs> like okay, we're going to get a satanic sword fight over a demon sacrifice with one dude with a blazing skull. That is great. And that's kind of one of the things that pissed me off about this issue it's right where it's starting to get really interesting, 
the issue stops. Right. And I'm kind of like, but I was really getting into it at this point. Right, and that's that's sort of what I meant by it not being good, is that it, it it's a lot of filler. The thing you really want the story to be about only starts in the last few pages and then ends on a cliffhanger. So it'll be interesting to see in two episodes' time if the next issue is able to keep up this momentum. Yeah. Um, going back to visuals, just because I it occurred to me looking at that last panel, almost every time Satan appears in this issue, it reminds me of Chernabog from Disney's Fantasia. Fair enough. The the Night on Bald Mountain sequence. Um, he, like, he is very satanic. Always in the shadows, like, looming over everything with the arms outstretched menacingly. It's, it's very much the, the Chernabog style. Yeah, I could see that. Just yeah, I, yeah, I did, now I can really whatever. see that because I don't, now I'm just imagining the great movie ride, <laughs> the part where Trinbog doesn't Trinbog show up in the great movie ride. Um, I think in the vid, in the movie clips at the end. Yeah, although I think we have thoroughly exhausted what we could say about Marvel Spotlight number seven. Um, probably so. It's it's fine. It's decent it's the art is good the action is good i i will say um i got a kick out of one of the letters in the spotlight mail page Ooh, i didn't read the letters what does it say okay so um this is it's actually the uh the third letter dear sirs i don't like it not at all not even a little bit um that those are the first three sentences of the letter um Though surely some sort of award ought to go for its being absolutely different. Personally, I'm not religious, but the concept of a very personal devil and an absolutely remote god strike me as, well, hardly in line with your usual optimism about the race of man. The devil at least cares enough to show up. Matter of fact, he may soon get to be as familiar as the Red Skull. And if he's that easy to get rid of... Oh, I see. He's complaining about a Silver Surfer comic, I think. I don't know. This is weird. Um... I'm yeah. not really sure what this guy's point is. I guess Satan showed up in an earlier Silver Surfer comic. Must have. Must have. Although that, if it's Silver Surfer, that's probably Mephisto. Right. But this was a point where identities of demons and Marvel was a little less clear. Yeah. Yeah, and oh god, we're going to have to do oh, that. We're going to get to talk about that over and over again, because... The identity of this particular Satan has been retconned at least three times. Yay. Um, other other letter writers were kinder to the Ghost Rider issue. Um, the one just before that says, Your new feature, Ghost Rider, is far more promising even than I had hoped it would be. Um, but he goes on to suggest that maybe it shouldn't have its own title. Maybe Ghost Rider should share a magazine with Werewolf by Night. Kind of like the old Tales to Astonish. Right, right. I could see that. Yeah, I could really see that. Um, he then I have to agree with the, that. The letter writer also suggests that uh, they need to ditch the motorcycle show entirely um, and give Johnny Blaze more powers. 
But yeah, I mean, I, it, it, I definitely, even at this point, several issues into Ghost Rider being a thing, the, the fan response is sort of a mixed bag, and that suggests that what what we're feeling about these issues isn't too far off the mark of where people were at the time. No, I I think I think you're right. It's pretty much in line with us. I mean, the imagery is fantastic. Yeah, the storytelling maybe not as much. What, okay, let me ask you something. Mm-hmm. Would you say that Werewolf by Night or Ghost Rider is a Spear comic? Huh. Um. Right now, that's hard. We've read more issues featuring Werewolf by Night than Ghost Rider. I can think of a couple of those issues that have been better than anything we've read in Ghost Rider so far. Okay. But I think where Ghost Rider excels is the imagery. Yes, I think Ghost Rider offers more opportunity for the kind of horror expressionism imagery that Plug is good at. Yeah. And I, I think, honestly, because of the nature of Jack Russell's curse, Ghost Rider also offers more story opportunities. We're just not seeing that yet. Yeah, I mean, we're still, in a lot of ways, dealing with origin stuff still. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Um, because the the whole fight with Curly is still very much tied into how is this guy still alive, given that we saw him die in the first issue. Yeah. Anyway, I think, like I said, I think we've thoroughly exhausted Marvel Spotlight. Yes. So, I think we're going to be right back with some news and closing comments right after this message. I got claws. I can use them. Who said that? Mutants must rule. Did you see that? Optic blast fire. They all said that. Talk. Introducing Marvel, Talking Superheroes, and X-Men. This is mine. It excels, too. Three separate voice sound activators let you control what they say. Die, Spider-Man. And do. I want to eat your brain. Spider-Sense tingling. Marvel, Talking Superheroes, and X-Men. Each sold separately from Toy Biz. And we're back on Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And, uh, I guess we, we've covered, uh our Man-Thing issue, and our Ghost Rider issue. Um, but, any closing thoughts that you have, James? Any any sort of Marvel horror-related topics that we might want to cover before we wrap things up for the day? They're making a goddamn Morbius movie. <laughs> sure they are. Sure they are. And not like the people I would want to make a goddamn Morbius movie... They're making a Sony Morbius movie. Hey, hey. Sony made the hit superhero movie Venom, okay? That was not a Venom movie. I still I haven't seen it, but it wasn't a Venom movie. 
Was Spider-Man in it? Probably not. Wait, you haven't seen it either? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) However, what I have seen is the advertisement for the Blu-ray release. And let me tell you, that is some hilarious stuff. So basically, we have two curmudgeon old nerds talking about things they don't like because it isn't the way it was when they grew up. Sort of. Although, I, I, when I say that the, the, the advertisement is hilarious, I mean in a good way. Uh, have you seen this advertisement for the Venom? Yeah, the one that does it like a love movie. Yeah, they, they, they're, well, they're playing up that... So, as some of you listening may be aware, when the Venom movie was being advertised, and when it first came out, people on various corners of the internet... Um, especially on your Twitters and your Tumblers, um, became very invested in Venom as a romantic sexual creature of some sort. That that Venom, the what? symbiote, and Eddie Brock are in a relationship. I did not catch any of this. I somehow avoided all of this. Oh, no. I, I was... Like, my Twitter feed was ground zero for some of this stuff, apparently. So, I, I caught a lot of it. And this was a thing that was... Go- this was this was sort of a meme that was going around. And so, Sony, rather than, like, pretending that didn't happen, they have full-on embraced it in their marketing. And I kind of think that's hilarious and awesome. Wow. Yeah, no, that, 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 that advertisement did not come out of nowhere. That is them responding to a trend. Okay. <laughs> I mean, do you? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I do want to see it eventually. I didn't have time to see it in theaters and, frankly, didn't want to spend the money to see it in theaters. But I am all for weird sci-fi movies where Tom Hardy gets to do funny voices. Yeah, but from what I understand, not even Tom Hardy being Tom Hardy could save that movie fair enough i mean i'm sure i'll end up seeing it at some point especially since apparently it's coming out on dvd two seconds after coming out in theaters right right but i'm not enthused about sony making a morbius movie i didn't want them to make a venom movie and i certainly don't want them to make a morbius movie Because we're starting to get to the good Spider-Man villains. (laughs) I mean, uh, and I say, I I know, guys, I know I say I mean too much on on this podcast. But we've already had the Green Goblin. We've had Dr. Octopus. Yep. Um, We've had uh, Sandman. Yep. We've had Venom twice. Yep. We've had the Vulture. Oh, we've had Electro, and we've had a Lizard. Yep. Um, briefly, Rhino. Yeah. I guess we're getting Morbius in Far From Home. Are we? Not Morbius. Mysterio. Yeah, no. Excuse I'm me. pretty sure Mysterio is happening. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're getting Mysterio in Far From Home. Are there any good Mo- Spider-Man villains after that? Any good Spider-Man um, rogues after we, that? We left, out, I mean, we left out Lizard, but... Uh, so we've had lizard. No, I said lizard. Oh, you did? Okay. 
Yeah, Lizard. Okay. Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, also, we had Shocker. He was technically in... Um, yep, you're right. Homecoming. And a Tinkerer. Yep. Um, neither of which I would consider good Spider-Man villains, but they are Spider-Man villains. Um, but what I'm saying here is we need Morbius for a real Marvel movie. Huh. So, you, you asked if there's any good Spider-Man villains left. Um, my answer would be yes, and that is the Jackal. <laughs> I, I don't understand what what's so funny. The, the Jackal is clearly one of Spider-Man's greatest nemeses. Oh, Trey, how long have you been writing under the name Dan Slot? <laughs> Look, I I don't agree with Dan Slot one hundred percent of the time. But he's right about the awesomeness of the Jackal as a villain. Yeah, I, I actually have to say that Dan Slott writing the Jackal was pretty great. I know some people hate Dan Slott's Spider-Man, and I haven't read every single issue of it. But what I've read, I've generally liked. I, so... I read a good bit of... From where he took over as solo writer. Because, you know, for a while he was alternating with other people. Yep. But but I read most of from where he took over as solo writer up through, I guess, Spider-Verse. I, I dropped off around the time they relaunched the book. Yeah. Um. But, but, but I read up through Spider-Verse, and honestly, there was way more good than there was bad. Exactly. And, you know, there are a lot of people who complain, oh, he doesn't understand Spider-Man, and like... I don't know what book they were reading. Right. Well, and on top of that, he brought in the Jackal repeatedly, which made me happy. Um, he brought in uh, Morbius a few times, which made me happy. Um, he turned Captain America into a giant spider monster, which made me happy. <laughs> I mean, that's cool, right? Oh yeah, that's like no, 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 that's that's cool. That's cool. That's cool, man. That's cool. He had Flash Thompson in a Venom suit fighting Captain America as a giant spider monster. Like it does not get. I don't think he actually wrote that issue. I think that was maybe an, an Agent Venom issue. But he was masterminding the overall story arc that that was a part of. And Spider Island was great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't care what anybody says. And so is Spider-Verse. Yeah, Spider-Verse is really good. I've not been following the Spider-Geddon that just started, but but Spider-Verse itself was great. I'll catch it in trade. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, when we get way, way, way down the road, or if we ever do like a special episode of just cool one-shots, um, <clears throat> the, there is an issue of the Spider-Verse one-shots that led up to the main event uh, that was a really great horror comic version of the Spider-Man origin. Interesting. Where where that world's Peter Parker ends up this really horrific cannibalistic monster, and it's cool. Like, sometime we need to talk about that issue. Um, but, all of that said, you're right. Morbius could be so much better than a sony not quite mcu movie exactly and they try it's like you've seen the trailer for once upon a deadpool right um yes 
where Fred Savage says, you're not really a Marvel movie. You want people to think you're a Marvel movie, but you're not really a Marvel movie. I'm at the point where I'm just like, just let Marvel make movies about Marvel characters. Right. And the, I'm not saying the I'm not problem. saying that Disney should own everything in 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 entertainment because I I know that's what people are gonna say. Well, you know the homogenization of entertainment industry is actually bad for creativity. Right. It's like no 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 no. That's not what I'm arguing. Just let Marvel make Marvel movies. They obviously have the best feel for these characters. They can do it right without the dancing around, not having freaking Spider Man in the movie. Right. And in Feige, we trust. Except when it comes to James Gunn, rehire James Gunn, hashtag whatever, you know. Yes, uh, agreed. I will second that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the downside is because Venom has been surprisingly successful and profitable, and by some of the accounts that I'm seeing among critics that I talk to um, who have already been to preview screenings apparently into the spider-verse is not just a good spider-man movie but is maybe one of the best animated features of the year um i i don't i'm hearing that too i don't see sony willingly giving up those properties anytime soon because even if what they're doing is not mcu quality they've hit on something that people like for better or worse my fear is them taking peter parker away from the mcu because you know i don't understand what you mean um peter parker died i saw that oh my sweet summer child he's dead He's, he's he's not in the mcu anymore That's going to make Spider-Man Far From Home a very boring film. (laughs) So it opens on Peter's funeral. Uh Uh-huh. Which is sparsely attended because half the Earth's population died. True. (laughs) Um, And then the rest of the movie follows Dr. Miles Warren's star pupil, Ben Riley. (laughs) <laughs> done seriously i like it seriously they should just hire me at this point because i would watch that movie i want to spec script my desk by monday there was a time when i joked that uh that they should do the clone saga and try to get toby Maguire and andrew garfield to play failed parker clones <laughs> oh, that's too cruel. Also, Andrew Garfield wouldn't do it. No, he wouldn't. He's. I bet Tim McGuire would do it. Probably. But... <laughs> I don't think Andrew Garfield would do it. No, I think I think, I think he's. Garfield's... I think he's still pretty bitter about the way that that reboot was handled. Yeah, because honestly, it wasn't his fault. That uh, those he was he and Emma Stone were the best parts of those movies. Agreed. But I just, I love Tom Holland as Peter Parker. Oh, yeah. He's just, he's perfect. Yeah, well, and it's, 
it's the weird thing. I talk about this sometimes with Batman movies in similar terms. But if you look at the Spider-Man movies, Tobey Maguire was a really good Peter Parker. Not a great Spider-Man. Mainly because he didn't quite have the the smart aleckiness, the snarkiness that I come to expect from a Spider-Man comic. Andrew Garfield was the flip side of that. He was very good at the snarky Spider-Man, but the version of Peter Parker that those movies offered was not particularly familiar to me. The MCU version, the MCU version with Tom Holland hits the sweet spot. He is both a really good sad sack Peter Parker, but also a really good super snarky Spider-Man. And I, I, he, it feels like Ditko. Yes. It feels like Ditko. Yeah. Even though we're not really getting the relationships we're used to, it feels like Steve Ditko Spider-Man. And I've been rereading those recently in light of Stan's passing. Right. And it's so good. Yeah. Like, you expect to, to, you know, old comics to be kind of hokey and not hold up. They hold up. There's a reason... I mean, not everything's perfect. There's a reason that people get upset when... when Marvel suggests they might retcon something from those early issues. Yeah, like because, when they came after John Byrne because after Chapter One, yeah, right. Well, that that's the the most obvious example, yeah. But and and the reason is because the early version still works. Yeah. Like they're not so dated or broken or old fashioned that they are not readable or relevant. You can still like when some of those classic Spider-Man villains show up for the first time, like Doctor Octopus. He basically shows up fully formed. He's not all that different from the Dr. Octopus that we know now. Well, he is now, because now Dr. Octopus is in a weird, modified, clone body of Peter Parker and has Hydra technology. Uh? Oh, you have you, you haven't seen any of the Superior Octopus stuff? No. Yeah, so Otto Octavius is the Superior Octopus now. <laughs> and he replaced his dying... Octavius body with a modified version of Peter Parker's body and has like a sleek like Spider-Man style octopus suit. Okie dokie. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um but up until recently the Doctor Octopus that showed up in comics was not all that different from the one that Stan and and Steve created all those years ago. Yeah. But I'm just saying I feel like we're going to get a watered down version of Morbius. Yes. Uh I I worry because it's not it's not going to be a horror movie, but it's not yeah. going to but it's not going to be a Spider-Man movie. Nope. I don't know what that I don't know what's left for it to be. Also, they're letting Jared Leto narrate. Right. Right. I mean, is he going to start biting people to get in character? Probably. Oh, Would not Christ. put that past him. Um, I still say 
the smart thing that should have happened is that Morbius should have been the villain of the third Blade movie. Go on. Well, so so because you've got the first Blade movie is the villain is a vampire dabbling in mystic arts to try and increase his powers. The second movie is vampires dabbling in genetic modifications to make themselves to 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 increase their their powers and longevity and all that. But it's deemed a mistake. The the result of that should have been Morbius. Like the end of Blade 2 should have set up for Morbius in the next one as like the final failed experiment from the vampires trying to make a super vampire or alternately michael morbius ends up with some of the vampires research and does his own thing with it to be fair i don't actually remember anything that happened in blade two or three blade two is the good one that's the one that guillermo del toro did okay it is worth revisiting blade trinity is not worth revisiting because it's barely a movie but we're still probably going to do commentaries on both of those. Sure, sure. But no, Blade Trinity is... That's that's the one that was directed by David S. Goyer. Um, okay. And it's the one that the villain was technically supposed to be Dracula, but in no way resembled Marvel's Dracula at all. Okay. And, like, they mentioned that he's Dracula, like, once, and I think that there's a quick shot of, like, a... a issue of tomb of dracula but for most of the movie they call him drake okay it's bad it's real bad um also uh pro wrestler triple h shows up as a vampire with metal fangs wasn't he in x-men was that the same guy no that's tyler main that's a different former pro wrestler i can't keep wrestlers straight if they don't wear a luchador mask i don't care uh tyler main is uh i think the same guy who played uh Michael Myers in the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. So again, something I don't care about. Right, right. Um, but no, Blade Trinity. Um, the best parts of it were, um, Ryan Reynolds as Hannibal King, who is a Tomb of Dracula character we have not met yet. Um, and uh, Jessica Biel played. Um, the daughter of Whistler, the sort of Blades tech guy, the guy who makes all of Blades gear. Yeah. Um, she serves a similar function as Rachel Van Helsing in Tomb of Dracula. You know, she's the she is the competent, experienced vampire hunter. And Patton Oswalt's in it too, right? Yeah. Oh, if you ever get a chance, if I can find it, I'll send it to James so he can put it in show notes, but there's a really hilarious uh, thing that Patton Oswalt wrote about his experiences on the set of Blade Trinity um, and interacting with Wesley Snipes. It's it's pretty funny um, and sort of points to just how weird and chaotic that movie was. Sounds fun. But yeah, Patton Oswalt is briefly in it. All right. So I think our consensus here is Sony Morbius movie... We don't like it. I I mean I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna say my stance is always cautious optimism until I have reason to feel otherwise. Um, 
right now, I don't even fully believe that it's happening until I see stills or a trailer or something. And even then, it might still not happen. Because remember the Corman Fantastic Four? This is true. This is true. The the best Fantastic Four movie. Absolutely. By far. Anyway, guys, it's getting close to midnight here at the tomb, so I think we're going to both bid you adieu. But before that, Trey, what issues are we t- telling the nice people about next time? Oh, just go ahead and put me on the spot like that, why don't you? Um, <laughs> that's uh, a good question that I might have an answer to someday. Um, yeah, I realized I didn't have the notes pulled up, so I was really hoping you had them pulled up. I did not have the notes pulled up. Um, well, poop. hold on. That's fine. This is... Okay. Okay. Um, next episode... You're just going to cut all of that out, right? Like, of all of that. Of course. Okay. Um, next episode, we will be talking about Fear Number 12 and Marvel Spot... No. Oh, you've not updated the episode list. Right. Okay. Scratch that. You're going to cut that out, too. Um, uh-huh. Next episode, we will be talking about Tomb of Dracula number six and Frankenstein number one, the Marvel introduction of the actual Frankenstein's monster who is not a robot from outer space. Right. And Werewolf by Night number three. Oh, right. We do have that one, don't we? Exactly. Don't worry. I'll cut that part out, too. <laughs> I'm not going to cut that out. Good night. Womp womp. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Members, Excelsior! Ha 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 ha!